Scripture tonight is 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sokoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sokoth and Azekah in Daman. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up to battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you just the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me tell you where uh, I think we're going to go the next couple of weeks. Um, this is a very, very rich story. And rather than rush through it, one of the things that's been on my heart lately is just going more slowly um, through life, through scripture, through relationship. Uh, and so one of the things that, uh, that, that we're going to do is we'll take a couple of weeks to just kind of sit in this story, listen to it. I'd encourage you, after we go through it on Sunday night, to take a little time during the week and reflect on it. You might do what we talk about, Lectio Divina, that idea of reading a text three times, seeing which part of the text speaks to you, meditating on that prayerfully. So we're just going to kind of marinate in this story for a little while. And as I mentioned last week, um, we're just exploring a little bit of a, of a new space together in our, in our worship service, and I'm trying to kind of uh, guide the teaching towards that in a little way. And, and, and basically the idea is that Jesus Christ is the shepherd of our flock, and like any good shepherd, one of the things a good shepherd will do is when the flock comes together at night, he'll check the coat of the sheep to see who's been uh, clipped or hurt or wounded or, or, or whatever, and then he'll care for that animal so that they can go back out into the world the next day. Well, this is a wonderful time for the good shepherd to care for us as a flock because we've all been in some brambles this week, and we bring them all in here. And one of the things in John 10 verse 3 says that the sheep hear his voice. So one of the things that I'm asking you to do is as we go through the service, that you'd be listening, you'd have your spiritual ears on for what the shepherd might be wanting to say to the sheep tonight. And when you come up, um, 
that you, you if, if God puts anything on your heart, would just whisper it to me as I serve you communion. And that might guide us into caring for each other after the, after the Eucharist when we have another brief time of prayer. I've also been praying for us, John 5.17, which where Jesus says he knows how to heal because he discerns where the Father's at work in the midst. And I'd like us to be prayerfully trying to discern in a more collaborative way what God is doing in this space right now tonight. So that's kind of the, the journey that I'm encouraging us to step into. So I think what that means is that you need to work doubly hard on being present tonight. And that's something I've noticed in my own life. How many times, even during that wonderful worship service, I thought about tomorrow morning, a phone call I need to make, something i got to do on Tuesday. I think that's being human. Um, I'd encourage you to work real hard at staying present in this 90-minute space and trying to discern what God is doing. Now, one, um, one little change to that, so that'll be the next three or four weeks, Daryl Arnold, our friend who's a pastor of Overcoming Believers Church in East Knoxville, um, has asked me to preach for him next Sunday over at Overcoming Believers. And Daryl said, I'm doing a series, Can You Preach on Worship? Now, Daryl can preach five different sermons on five different subjects uh, with no problem. I can't. I can prepare one sermon. (laughs) So next week, I'm going to fast forward to 2 Samuel 6, and next week we're going to talk about worship, and then we're going to go back to David and Goliath. Now... Uh, don't hate me, but i got to do it. So D- Daryl said, and tell your people we'd love for them to come. Uh, and I wanted to pass that on to you. You know, when we hear stories like the one Chris just shared, and you just get overwhelmed with the whole issue of race and reconciliation and injustice, the only thing I know to do at the end of the day is pursue relationships with people who are different than me. And God, I think, has given us an opportunity at OBC uh, to, to do that. So if you're led to, to come join me, you know, and honestly, you're good to pray for me. Here's my sense, is that you all enjoy Daryl more when he comes here than they enjoy me when I go there. So, you know, they kind of get that, uh-oh, educated white man look. You know, and it, it, you can kind of hear the, the crickets. But it, they're wonderful people, and, and, uh, and, it, and it usually goes well. So they start at 1230-ish. Um, I, I never quite figured out the start time, but 12.30, sort of. So get there, and, and uh, it'll get going around that time. Okay, so last week, we were introduced to David, the young shepherd boy that Samuel anoints to be the future king of Israel. And the story ends with Samuel returning home, David returning to his sheep. And that, that, that's such a poignant way to end the story because God has just kind of burst into this little family. He's called David to this great task. And then they're left to work it out, kind of seemingly by themselves for a while. So David goes back out to the sheep. And we don't know how long, but it appears a number of years have come by. He's growing into a man when we meet him again. And we meet him on a very famous battlefield. And uh, if you'd go ahead, Bruce, and put up the first map, let me, let me try to put a little bit of a regional context uh, here. This is a map of the Middle East today. And, um, of course, the names in the Bible are, are different in, in some of those countries. But you can see Israel right down there in the middle, 
uh, on the Mediterranean, underneath Lebanon, uh, by Egypt and Jordan. I took a class there in the summer of 2002 on uh, the geography of the Holy Land. And one of the things that I learned that I didn't really understand before, and that map actually helps you see it, is the Holy Land doesn't have a lot of natural resources um, like other parts of, of the world, um, but, but it is extraordinarily strategic to commerce. Can you see why? It's, um, it, it was kind of the center of the ancient world because there was a massive highway that went north and south. There was a, a massive highway that went east and west, and all the ships would come into the ports there. And so Israel was fought over uh, uh, many, many times because if you had Israel, you had access to the ports and to travel. Um, so it's very strategically located. Now, our story, if we could zoom in and look a little bit at the next slide, takes place in southern Israel. The whole of Israel is about 90 miles long and about 30 miles wide. So it's like the difference between here and the distance between here and Chattanooga. Um, the Hebrew word for Philistine is uh, Palestium. And it's the word we get pal- uh, Palestine from. Um, and the Israelites are at war with the Philistines for most of their history. And there are five main cities uh, that you can see there, uh, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Ascalon, and there's one other that, oh yeah, up there, and uh, Afek. Those were the five main cities of the, the Philistine nation state. Now, you can kind of tell that was uh, where a coastal highway ran. And so it was very strategic to the movement of of commerce and shipping. Now, you can also see that the Israelites are kind of walled off uh, from the Philistines, and their their kingdom moves actually down towards the south at this point uh, in in what's called the land of Judah. Um, And they are at war. Now, if we go to the third slide, now we're, we're... uh, about an hour's bus ride southwest of Jerusalem. Um, and you can still go there today. Got to go there. Uh, I was there. Um, and there is this valley that isn't what we'd call a valley. It's really more like a plain, and it's about a half a mile wide. And there are two hills on other, either side of the valley. And those two cities, Soka and Azaka, Soka is still there. Azaka is um, being dug out as an uh, uh, architectural site. Um, and it's a very strategic uh, path because if, if the Philistines control the valley, they can send their troops down into Judah. If the Israelites control the valley, they can send their troops up into uh, where the Philistines are. So it's kind of like the Cumberland Gap was during the Civil War. Um, the, the North wanted it, and the South wanted it, uh, because it, whoever had the gap had the, the power over the troops. So this is a very significant battlefield in Israel. Now, you'll often see in the Bible, uh, you'll, it'll say, and the troops were on opposing hillsides, because this region particularly is, is very, very hilly. Um, and that would often be how, thing, how the battles would be fought. Now, As we get ready to read this story, 
one of the questions that, that I want to ask is, how do you read it? You know, Paul says twice in the New Testament that the Old Testament stories are given for our instruction. This is going to be a very bloody story. We're going to have a, a decapitation. We're going to have rotting bodies strewn across the hillside. You know, Game of Thrones has nothing on the Bible. This is uh, going to be a, a lot of bloodshed in here. So how do you read a story like that in an edifying way? Well, obviously, it is a historical story. Uh, you can still go to the places where it happened. You can learn much from studying the battle and the courage of David and the faith of David, and we're going to do that. But I think we can also find some other clues. Jesus never says to hate, hate our enemies. He says to love our enemies. And the real enemy, Jesus says, is Satan and the demonic powers that serve him. So, and this is significant, I think, as, as we read the Bible. Physical warfare in the Old Testament becomes spiritual warfare in the New Testament. You see? Physical warfare in the Old Testament becomes spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. So here is one way that we can read a story like this, is that the, the Philistines, we can see them as a symbol of a spiritual power that is trying to oppress God's people and keep God's people from flourishing. So we're, we're, we're lifting it out of kind of the historical context here, and we're saying that, that the Philistines can, can be symbolic of a spiritual power that oppresses God's people. So God commands Israel to conquer the promised land, and the Philistines are standing in the way. As we'll see in a few minutes, uh, the, uh, those five cities there were the five cities that Joshua failed to conquer uh, before he died. And they come back to haunt the Israelites. So God, in a similar way, invites us to spread his kingdom over all the earth. Just as he asked the Israelites to spread his kingdom um, over the promised land. And so he invites us to help him spread the reign of justice and peace on earth. And so that means when, whenever you try to spread the gospel, whenever you try to work for justice, whenever you adopt a machi kid, when you ever try to share with a friend, whatever it is, when you're trying to expand the kingdom of God on earth like they were doing in their way in the Old Testament, you are going to encounter warfare. You're going to go to your own Valley of Elah. There is going to be a Goliath. There are going to be Philistines. There are going to be powerful forces that oppose you in the work of justice and evangelism. Now, Another way that we can think about this is to note that God also wants his kingdom to reign in our hearts. We're all on a journey towards wholeness and maturity. And the Bible calls this becoming holy. So Paul tells the Romans, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And he tells the Corinthians, we're all being changed into his likeness from glory to glory. So one of the ways that we can look at this story is, is to see the the conquest as the promised land as a picture of sanctification. One of the ways we can read the book of Joshua, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, things like that, is as a symbol of God taking over our lives and making them his. Just as Jesus Christ, or just as uh, Israel had gone into the promised land and decisively made a victory and put a beachhead there and was expanding. So Christ has come into our lives, has decisively made a beachhead, and is expanding. 
But there still remain giants in the hills. There still remain many aspects of our flesh that are not yet yielded fully to the kingdom of God. So we can read it that way as well. The promised land in the Old Testament is a picture of the New Testament believer. And that's one of the reasons why spiritual growth is so hard. It's one of the reasons why we get stuck. It's one of the reasons why people stop growing. Is because there are Philistines left in the land. Uh, there are Goliaths in our inner life that keep us from becoming the people God wants us to be. Okay, back to our story. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And, and I, I think we've got a picture here of Goliath. It's hard to find a good one. Um, there's a lot of paintings about them. Uh, one of the things that's uh, probably off about that is the armies were probably much further apart given the, the length of the, the width of the plane. But that's a, a fairly good representation of, of what he might have looked like. Uh, it says he's uh, six cubits in a span. I've, I've seen that translated as anywhere from six foot nine to nine foot. Uh, but given the average warrior was five two, either way, the guy was a beast. Um, what he does is very typical for uh, that period. Is They'd call it representative warfare, where one army would say, look, we've got 10,000 on each side. Rather than slaughtering everybody, why don't we go ahead and you pick your best soldier, we'll pick our best soldier, and, and they'll duke it out. And that's what's happening here. Um, now, Goliath is from Gath, and we've talked about that a little bit. Gath is one of the five cities Joshua failed to conquer, now, there's kind of an interesting little biblical trail about Gath. Gath is also the home of the Anakim. And the Anakim are some of the people that Joshua failed to drive out of the promised land. And the Anakim are known as giants. And when Joshua sends those ten kind of cowardly spies into the promised land to come back and make a report, they come back and they say, we can't go in there. Joshua says, why? He says, because the Anakim are there. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. So there's these huge people that are there. Well, you go a little farther. The Anakim, we read in Deuteronomy, are descended from the Nephilim. Now, we're going somewhere with this. Okay. The Nephilim make two appearances in the Bible. One in Genesis 6, in the days of Noah, where it says that the sons of God, these spiritual creatures unite with women and create these, these odd beings that somehow go out into the world. And their name Nephilim means the fallen ones. So there, there's this kind of substrata in the Bible of these demonically inspired giants that oppose God's people. And this is so, so much a part of the ancient culture that when archaeologists went into the caves at Qumran and I guess it was 45 or 44, and they found these scrolls that nobody had ever found before, and they're all sitting in a basket, and they bring them up, and they take them back to, to interpret them. One of them is called the Book of the Giants. So there's these ideas that, that these, these creatures are somehow roaming the earth and, and, and opposing the people of God. Now, one last little uh, 
fun trivia on Goliath. In 2 Samuel 21, we find out he has four giant boys who fought against David. Goliath's name means going into exile. Now, you'll notice I'm very interested in what I, you know, Mark Pate, when he teaches on Monday nights, it's always good to talk about the different layers of meaning. I've just given you a lot of historical layers of meaning. But, but I think there's a spiritual principle here. If you could kind of step away for a second of all the warfare and the bloodshed and all of that and think about what is the symbolism of this story saying. One of the things I think it's saying is that when, when Joshua failed to remove the five cities that opposed him and the giants that opposed him, they reproduced and became more deadly and came back to haunt him. And I think there's a spiritual principle there about our own lives. When, when God calls you to deal with issues in your life, deal with sin in your life, deal with woundedness that creates destructive patterns of relating in your life, and you leave them alone because it's too hard, they'll become like giants. And they won't go away, and they'll breed... And years later, they'll come back to oppose you. And of course, we know if, if one of them has got to be forgiveness, right? You don't deal with forgiveness, you'll have a giant coming back after you. Well, I think it's also true when we go out into the world to make disciples, this, this idea of the Nephilim, which, you know, this idea of a spiritual human uh, amalgamation that opposes the people of God. You, you know, when Chris talks about dealing with gang violence, whatever the, you know, the cause that God has called you to deal with for justice and righteousness and wherever he's called you to serve, it, when you get into it, it feels like you're dealing with a Nephilim. It feels like there's this combination of supernatural darkness wrapped up in a human face or system, and you wonder, how on earth am I ever going to oppose this thing? And we were sitting around dinner at Tuesday night with the kids at swimming, and we just got to that thin place moment where they were being real honest, and I said, guys, what are you, what are you concerned of? And uh, Kalista, she's eight, she says, um, getting shot. And then Renisha just shakes her head and says, yeah, somebody in my family getting shot. And then uh, Kamani says, yeah. See, that, that's, a, that's a Nephilim problem. There, there's, a, there's some kind of a dark giant that's at work. Uh, in, in that whole system that we need to be aware of as we confront it. Well, then the, the narrator gives this wonderful description of, of Goliath. He, he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels. He had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield bearer went before him. 
Everything about this description underscores Goliath's strength and superiority of his weaponry. Uh, Everything about him is covered except for his face. His coat of mail has several thousand bronze pieces resembling fish scales. His legs and knees are protected. He has a massive javelin. His armor, they they say, weighed about 125 pounds. His shield is so massive that that he has another soldier carry it for him. Goliath is an intimidating, overwhelming foe from a culture that had superior technology. And the narrator does that on purpose. The narrator wants the reader to see this is an overwhelming problem. This is a massive obstacle in the way of God's people achieving their future in him. This is unstoppable. That's what you're supposed to think. Now, if you follow two uh, TED Talks, you've you've seen, no doubt, this uh, silly talk by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, He's written a book called David and Goliath, which actually is a pretty good book, but he has the most absurd treatment of this passage I've ever seen anywhere uh, that has everybody spellbound because they know nothing about how to read the Bible. (laughs) What he essentially says is, this guy's very large, therefore he must have had an eye disease, and we know he has an eye disease because a man went with him, and the man must have gone with him because he had an eye disease, and so he really couldn't see, and it really wasn't the story of David being outmatched because he really just killed a blind man. Um, That has nothing to do with the story, okay? The whole point of the story is that the narrator wants, wants the reader to shake, to quiver, to look at this problem and just think, oh, what is going to happen here? How how could we ever possibly overcome this? We're doomed. That's why the narrator describes it this way. And then the, the giant just starts thundering against Israel, why have you come out? I'm, am I not a Philistine? Aren't you servants of Saul? Choose somebody for yourselves. Let him come to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll be your servants. If I prevail and kill him, you'll be ours. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man to fight. And he does this for 40 days. And so it's, it's like psychological warfare that, that is just being broadcast over the And the valley has kind of a natural echoing to it. And so for 40 days, he just yells these taunts against Israel's God, against their courage. And I'm pretty sure he thinks, I'm going to get out of this one without a scratch. Because they're just going to crumble because they're terrified of me. Isn't that like our enemy? Isn't that his primary way of hurting us. Psychological warfare, this ongoing tape that plays in your head that defies who you are and who your God is. And you play it endless loop, endless loop, endless loop. You know, I was trained in seminary to practice Carl Rogers' approach towards therapy, in, in part. And Carl Rogers' approach to therapy was uh, unconditional empathy. So, so we watched a video of the man at work. And, and essentially what it is, is you step back and you listen and you affirm and you nod your head and, and you do a great job of caring. And the premise is that at the end of the day, the individual will find their way to truth and healing. That happens some of the time. Here's what I've found happens more often. If I do that and that's all I do, the person will get into an endless loop 
and never exit. And I can sit with them for two years and we'll hear the same lies over and over and over again. And sometimes I think we're powerless to see them and escape them. That's kind of where Israel is, right? Have you seen anything in here yet about God? About who he is? About faith? About God's glory? None of it. Because Goliath's voice is too strong. And so I wonder if maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe there's a Goliath in your head, and he's just got your number, and every day he's saying the same thing again and again and again. And what's his goal? He says, I want to make you servants. I want to enslave you. And that's what Goliath will do. That's the purpose of our enemy. He wants to strip from you the freedom that you have in Christ and lock you up into a life of anxiety and terror and fear. 